Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. story. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton of the International Culinary Center and today I'm really excited because I don't know him very well but I'm interviewing Sean Hergott at his new extraordinarily beautiful serene restaurant Junie on West 31st Street in New York City. Um, For those of you who might not be so familiar with Sean, he's uh, an incredibly admired chef in the New York City uh, space. Uh, yeah, you know, as far back as the year 2000, uh, the Australian Hotel Association uh, awarded him Best Young Chef Award uh, for the dining room at the Ritz-Carlton in Sydney. And he then went to the Satai in Miami, and he got three stars from the Miami Herald when he was the executive chef. But that year, he got Best New Restaurant from Esquire. Uh, we were lucky to get him in New York, and he opened SH's SHO, uh, which got two stars, Michelin stars, in 2009. He was named Best New Chef by New York Magazine in 2009, and Best New Restaurant again with Esquire and New York Magazine. So if you have not checked out his food, if you have not eaten, or it's not just the food, he, he's, um, he's holistic. He's about the whole experience. Hi, Sean. Hi, how are you? I'm, I'm very well. I'm very excited to um, learn your story. So you, your accent betrays that you're not a New Yorker. No. Oh, no. So tell us um, where you come from. Uh, born and bred in Australia, um, from <clears throat> a very small town in the north called Cairns, uh, near the Great Barrier Reef. So I'm a bit of a country boy. Um, I actually have been in the United States now for over a decade. Um, but clearly, I started cooking about 21 years ago, and I think that my father was a, a chef for a little while. My grandmother's an amazing cook, and you know the inspiration for what I've done has really come from those two. So, what what kind of? Uh, I know you cooked with your grandmother. Mm. Everybody cooks with their grandmother. <clears throat> what kind of food did your, you know, uh, your grandmother cook in Northern Australia? Well, I think it's actually. It's ethnically based because she's from Scandinavia. So cooking in our family was an extremely big deal. And on every special occasion she would bake, I think that I learned the roots of cooking from her because from the age of three to five, I'm in the kitchen with her and she's cooking for a family where we would eat at a communal table um, and literally have 16 people from my aunties and uncles and we'd have breakfast, lunch and dinner and also have afternoon tea and morning tea because my grandfather ran a a large business, so therefore it was a very strong family unit as a child. Clearly, she used to slave over the stove and make sure that everything was spotless, and I think that that was really the person who instilled this whole, you know, understanding of the quality and and the the drive of how important food is. 
Was she the mother of your father? Or mother of my mother. Mother of your mother. So she didn't birth the professional chef in the family. No, but she inspired the rest of us because I think the reality of it is that she was the commanding force behind the family. I mean, yes, my grandfather was a strong entity, but the reality of it is, is my grandmother, which we call Mumu because she's from Finland, um, she was a, she was a backbone. She was the one who kept everyone together and kept us in line and made sure that we ate well and we live well and and it was really. Okay, well, when you said Scandinavia, of course, I immediately go to Sweden and Norway. Right. Finland, what kind of home food do you have, you know, that your grandmother would cook from Finland? You know, there's a lot of different styles of food. I mean, from fish soup to bulla to a lot of different varieties of fish. Um, I think I predominantly grew up on things that I didn't necessarily like to eat. <laughs> like what? Uh, the fish soup, for one. I mean, it was just something that is, you know, you got basically potatoes onions, fish, a little bit of cream and some fish stock, and it's just not appealing to a person who's at five, five years of age. Um, you know, we would have homemade donuts, we would have these, uh, you know, almond cookies and all these different things, which I love the sweeter side of life, which I'm pretty surprised I didn't become a pastry chef. Mm. But the one thing that was very strange was uh, every time they would cook, they would cook traditional Finnish food, and I really didn't like it. Well, you know, it's so funny. You're one of the iconic seasonal chefs. In Finland, don't they have just like one season and then a, like a 10% summer? Or, yeah, two, know, two, no, so two seasons. one short season for summer yes, and summer. the rest is winter. So there's a lot of root vegetables. There's a lot of food that is basically pickled and stored. And I think the one thing is, is that it's very harsh on your palate. It's not exactly the most refined food. So therefore, when you grow up as a child, you have to learn to love these things. It's not something that naturally comes to you as a kid, you mm-hmm. know. And I think that was the funny thing is like I was always forced to eat my food as a child and I wasn't really in love with it. I love I love the baking side of it because it was a part where we would cook together, but the actual eating of the food wasn't necessarily my, my cup of tea. Yeah. So when so when did you get the bug to be a chef or to cook professionally? Your father was a professional chef. Yes, what he, was that like? Did he cook at home and what was his ethnic background? Well he's actually an American. He's from uh-huh. my, he's from Ohio, uh, uh-huh. Norwalk, Ohio. Um, he used to work in a couple of restaurants. He worked in a couple of hotels. And I actually would go with him in a professional kitchen at the age of five. So what would happen was basically I'd turn up. I remember he was a sous chef in the morning, so he'd look after breakfast and lunch uh, in this particular restaurant. And I would actually go in at five o'clock with him and hang out in the kitchen until he finished his shift. In the morning? In the morning. So before I went to school, uh, I think there was a lot of time where I was actually in a commercial kitchen, which was not relative to me at that time. Um, once he quit actually cooking, we ended up, we lived in a very rural area. And the one thing is, is that there was cattle, there was bananas, there was a lot of farming land, watermelons. Um, but there was also a very strong river system behind our house as well. So we used to grow a lot. We used to hunt. I used to hunt as a child. As I progressively got older, from the ages of, say, 10 to 12 to 13, there are a lot of ingredients that I learn about that would grow out of the ground, that would be seasonal, that would have a great impact in the later life of what happened in my life anyway. Um, you know, I learned how to plant corn. I understood how radishes would taste when they'd just been pulled out of the ground. Um, the first time I actually had slaughtered a cow was at the age of five with my father and his best friend in a paddock. And that what taught... Was it? What, what? did that feel like at five what did well, what was your emotion i'm gonna it's got pretty graphic because you're at just the crack of dawn it's freezing you're looking at this this cow and you're understanding you can feel the heartbeat in it it's really crazy 
you, you basically put it down and then you hang it into this, this Y frame and you skin it, you gut it, and basically then you cut it up and you hang it and then you eat it. So after a week you get to, to, to try it. But the initial stages of, and I still remember it vividly, I still remember the, the steam coming off the dead carcass. I still remember the smell. It's not a negative. It's something that was such an educational piece for me that you have to know where your food is coming from. You have to understand the basis of what you're doing to an animal and the respect level of where you need to be. It's not just about killing. It's not just about eating. It's about the understanding that you've, you've grown this animal. You've fed this and you've loved this animal. But in the reward of life, you get to try it. You get to eat it. You, get have, you have sustenance. And I think that was a very important lesson for me because it made me understand when you touch something, somebody, somebody's given their time, the animal's given their life to be able to make you live. And that's a very deep thought. And that's something that was very, very, very strong for me as a child. So when you deal with a steak or a roast, right. you look at that meat. Every time. Every time I think about that silly cow. You, you but, um, do? Yes, it, it's, it's, a, it's a very strange thing. I mean, I talk about this one concept to a lot of people. This is not the first time we've had this conversation. And like I said, I can still smell the strength of the blood coming out of the animal because it was such a strong experience for me. Now I'm 38. I, 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 I've, I've cooked for 21 years. I've traveled the world. I've eaten at every great restaurant. And the one thing that I, I find about chefs is that they understand and, and they're concerned about not only the value of where it's coming from, not only the value of what it's doing for you, but the respect level for what you're doing to that animal. And I think that's a very important thing. It's the same as a vegetable. It's the same as dairy. It's the same as anything that you're harvesting or bringing to the table. It has to be dealt with with a respect level, and you have to understand what you're doing with it. And it's not just, let's cook it and eat it. There's, a, there's a, a method, there's an understanding, there's a reason behind everything that you do in the kitchen, whether it's at home or whether it's in a commercial place. So it seems that you were born to be a chef. I mean, there, you know, between your grandmother and your father and being in a commercial kitchen at five years old, mm. you know, uh, that you have a profound understanding and respect for the profession. How, uh, you know, did you ever consider anything else? Well, yeah, actually, it's funny because in year, year 10, I think, I did work experience as a cook. And they offered me an apprenticeship because they saw that I was talented in what I did. It was very easy for me. But it wasn't something that I wanted to pursue because everyone warned you with the fact that you're going to lose your life and you'll be dedicated to this one kitchen and it's going to be this crazy sort of like, just this crazy sort of career. So I started to ponder... I would like to be an artist because I, I draw well, I clearly am very artistic, I enjoy the, the, the flavors of design and, and understand also clothing and all these different aspects of, of art. Um, unfortunately, I'm not so academic. And unless you love something and you're very interested in it, it's very hard to learn to the point where you're going to be excellent. Mm-hmm. Um, so I finished school, I did my year 12, uh, and I was going to apply for university. All of my friends clearly outdid me with their, with their TE score. We have a TE score in Australia. Mm-hmm. I scored 630, which was pretty funny. Uh, the rest of them were doctors and lawyers, and they mm-hmm. scored 990, which yeah. was the highest. Mm-hmm. Um, it starts at 550, so clearly I wasn't very good. <laughs> uh, so art was a, a passion, but not necessarily a, a destiny. So I worked in a, a, a couple of restaurants already as a kid, and I also worked in a, this little hotel as a bellman. 
And it was something that I was really just doing as a, a side job. And then the chef said to me, he said, listen, you know, I used to watch service. And he's like, can you do this? And I was very cocky. I was very young. Could you do this in the kitchen or could you do this in the dining room? In the kitchen. In the kitchen. In the kitchen. So I was a bellman, so I used to just hang out and talk in to the, the chefs. Yeah, yeah, in the because kitchen. Because you yeah. were comfortable there. Well, it was also somewhere where, you know, when it was quiet, it was easy to hide because I was a young kid and I didn't want to work. I had no motivation. <laughs> I was very happy just sort of like hanging out, as children do. And, uh, you know, the chef said, can you do it? I said, listen, this is going to be very easy for me. So he realized that my ego was probably bigger than my technical skill. Um, and he was extremely forceful for the first year and a half of my apprenticeship. And he was the one who fortunately molded my mind. I'm not necessarily in love with his technique, but there was a purpose to his, his, his methods and his philosophy. And he was passionately uh, involved in making sure that my success was the most important thing because he realized really? the potential. He was, uh, yeah. he was tough, but he understood Were there that, other apprentices in the kitchen there? You know, I had a... The executive chef, the sous chef, myself, another guy who was in the kitchen, and a dishwasher. So it was a small team. We only did about 40 people every night. Um, but the one thing is, it was just a dinner restaurant. I learned the basics, and it was 21 years ago. So, you know, Pomme Chateau, all of the turned vegetables, every classic item that you could imagine was really what we were cooking. And that was really, for me, it was the understanding of taste, flavor, and technique. It wasn't necessarily about chemical gastronomy or sous vide cooking. It was about taste, and it was about really, really getting the best products that you can. And it wasn't fancy. I mean, we would have potatoes and vegetables and, and starch and meat and all those basic things. We'd have salad, and but it was about making sure that the balance of the flavors were correct. It was about making sure that everything was replicated like little soldiers on the table so that when you, when you had one carrot and you turned that carrot, then the next hundred would be exactly the same. So what he was doing was he was, he was really molding my mind on, on consistency and understanding how to produce quality uh, at the same rate every single time. That was important. So um, in your opinion, what does it take to become a chef? How long does it take to mold somebody, to train somebody and inspire somebody? When, when are you ready mm. to, be, to take on your own restaurant and say, I am a chef? Well, I think it's, everyone has their own level. Everyone learns at a different rate. Everyone has a different passion level and also a different understanding of what their goals are in their life. We're all brought up differently. And I think that's, that's a hard a a question to answer because one would do it in a short time and another would do it in a long time and another would not do it at all. So I feel it's up to you. I feel like the dedication and the understanding of what your goals are are the key factor of your success. I was a bit of a late bloomer. I didn't really care about you know, growing my career, it was more about the first, say, five to six years was just about cooking and I was very, I wouldn't say lost, but I didn't have direction. I knew that I was good at what I did, but I didn't understand what talent that I was given. And I didn't understand how to utilize it in, the, in its most potential. So from my perspective, you know, there are a lot more talented chefs out there when I was younger um, that could have made it much further. But the, 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 the one thing that made me successful was persistence making sure that I set a goal and regardless of whether I move as fast as the next person or I am less talented than the next person, the difference is, is my work ethic and my persistence will outdo most people. So what that means is that it doesn't matter what happens in my career, I'll get pushed back five steps, but then I will make sure that I gain those five steps plus another two. And that's the key. And that's the one thing that this is a marathon. This is something that <laughs> 
you have to prepare your mind for because you're up against partners, you're up against the press, you're up against the staff who work for you. They're all supporting you in some way, shape or form, but you have to be mentally strong and understand that your goal has to be the ultimate and you can't veer from that goal and sort of like either suppress it or relax. You have to always continuously try to get to that point, which is never going to happen. But at the end of the day, I think that's the key. I think making sure you drive. Yeah, it's the journey as much as the goal. It's only the journey. There is no goal. Okay, we're going to take a short break here, but I'm coming back to the journey in a minute. Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Did you know that pollinators are needed for more than two-thirds of the world's crop species? Most of these pollinators are bees. However, North America's bee population has been steadily declining since the 1990s. Whether you live in the country or the city, you can show your commitment by hosting a hive in your backyard or even on a rooftop. The beekeeping movement is growing, so you're sure to find swarms of folks who can help you find your way. Learn more about the ways you can help be the solution at wholefoodsmarket.com slash share the buzz. Welcome back. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton uh, from the International Culinary Center, and today I'm interviewing Sean Herga, um, who has a new restaurant, Juni, on East 31st Street in New York City. Uh, he's one of the most admired chefs in New York City, especially for his touch with seasonal seasonal cooking. But there's there's a lot more, and we're going to pick up talking about um, the journey to become a chef. When you said that you were you considered art as a career. It made all the sense to me because your restaurants are you're not just in the kitchen. Your your hand is in the decor, your hand is in the the art on the walls. Um, tell me tell me this let well I want to get to that point of why you're so involved with the hmm. uh, you know the external. Uh, but we were talking about the journey to be a chef. What are the the goals? You know, what are the skill sets that you have to master? Because it's multidimensional. You just said it's very to get to be the chef. There's a lot of demands. What are what are? How would you bucket those? Categor- it's not just cooking well. No, no. Categorization of what your business model is. First, it starts with a P and L because clearly you have to know how to run a business. If you don't, if you can't make money out of a restaurant, then you go down. So therefore, you can be the best chef in the world. It doesn't matter. Right. These are not necessarily rated in the first to the last. It's more or less, this is what you have to do. Cooking and talent in cooking is very, very important. And passionately loving food to understand how to produce that and put it on a plate with consistency is important for the client. Management of people and understanding that you have to also be a father. You have to be a disciplinary. You also have to be somebody who can care for somebody and understand that they are going through a difficult time and you you need to be an ear. you know, there's so many different levels of chefs and so many different uh, respect levels as far as what you need to do for your career or your job. So not every time that you get a, a, a chef position, you're going to have to do this. But in my mind, you know, I also work on design. I also work on conceptual design. I also work with interior design, artwork, and putting the full concept together. So that, for me, is very important as far as what a chef should know, too. Um, you know, there's all those little things about you have to learn how to schedule or you have to learn how to basically run a front of house so that you understand service. You need to know a wine list um, to a certain extent. You may not necessarily have to be the expert in it, but you have to understand it. 
Um, I also think that, especially now, the bar business is coming towards you know our, our game as well, and I think that's an important part because that's the first delivery of what you're doing. Uh, when you sit down and you have a, a great cocktail, then you move to the restaurant. That's a, an important part. I was always under, you know, a chef who wanted to understand breakfast, lunch, and dinner, banquets. I wanted fine dining. I did brasserie. I've done every sort of gamut. You know, when I opened up the Satai Hotel, I did a, a pool that did 400 covers for lunch. Um, you know, we had a grill which did 100, so it was a steakhouse. We had another uh, restaurant which did 275 on a Saturday night and was fine dining. So, you know, room service is important just to understand the dynamic of how that works. So I wanted to be the all-rounded guy who knew basically to pull, you know, not only a financial statement but also an understanding of quality and consistency out of every aspect of the business. That for me was a key factor of success because clearly, you know, I look at role models like Joel Robichon. He worked in a hotel where he would do 5,000 covers in his banquet before he opened Jaman. So at the end of the day, that organization and that skill set was a, a really strong uh, push for his success because at the end, I think that from our perspective, we need to be organized. And the more organized you are, the more successful you become. These are the life lessons that I've learned. I think that it's not going to be everyone's path, but I think it was an important value for myself. Okay, so let's drill down into your restaurants that you have had. Right. Why did you come to New York? Well, I was actually transferred from Australia when I was 24, and uh, I was a chef de cuisine of a small restaurant in Sydney. Very successful, no press, but we ended up having a great following got bored out, moved to the States, lived in D.C. for a year, and I hated it. I just didn't like the food scene. Had the opportunity. I had opened up a bunch of hotels for Ritz-Carlton as a trainer. I was the youngest corporate trainer there. Anyway, to make a long story short, I went to Ritz-Carlton Central Park, and I met Gabrielle because he was transferring from Jean Georges, a chef de cuisine. He was opening up Atelier. That was his first gig in the city, and I was pretty ambitious, and I wanted to work for a great chef that had a name in the city. So I worked for him for a few years, um, great acclaim, you know, three stars from the Times, all that sort of good stuff. And it was really a big deal for me because I was very young. I worked very hard. I probably worked harder for him than I've worked in my life. Um, he then went to the Modern. I then went down to the Satai and opened up as chef. And I thought that was my in as far as, like, getting the number one position. The Satai in Miami. Yeah, in Miami. And it wasn't my first destination, but I thought, you know what, you have to do it. So at the age of 29... I opened up the Satai and it was supposed to be a 100-room hotel with uh, one restaurant, which would do about 50 or 60 people. Anyway, to make a long story short, the pool did 400. Room, the rooms had 1,000 people in it with, with the, the whole package. Uh, they had a steakhouse banquets. We also rolled that restaurant with about 7.5 million in our first year and 8.5 in our second. So it was a pretty busy place. I learned on the spot. I knew what I was doing, but I didn't have the life experience to deal with the stress made a huge success. It was a great success, but I worked, you know, literally 18 hours a day to make sure that, and I actually worked 128 days or 132 days straight in the opening of that to make sure that it was, you know, when I put my name to something, I really stand by it. And, you know, that was the building blocks for the future of how I got my investment for my first restaurant. They saw what I did. They knew my dedication. Anyway, I got connected with a partner and I come back to New York because that was my dream because I didn't want to cook in Miami. That was never a long-term investment. It was more so just to get my chef position. So I come back to the, the city. I open up in a very strange area near Wall Street, but we looked at the area and the development was actually quite good because Hermes just opened, Tiffany's opened. The economy was strong. We thought that was a booming area. and It was going to be one of the future forefronts and the frontiers of dining that we could actually develop. 
which from my perspective, going to Midtown could have been an option, but you know, all the big chefs are there. They paid their dues before they did it. So I said, listen, let's take an odd space, but we're going to make this happen. I did it at the Satai. Every place that I've gone has been a success. Anyway, on the, I think literally the week that I opened, it was the biggest financial crisis yeah. in America, <laughs> in the history of life in America. Right, right. So there I am standing in my restaurant, beautiful place, very opulent restaurant, big investment, and there's nobody, in, there's nobody sitting down. I've got all these cooks. I've got everyone there. Anyway, we, we, we worked hard. We developed the program. Um, I was very proud of show because the first couple of months, we got 29, 29, 29 in Zagat. We got a Michelin star within the first two months. And also Esquire Magazine's one of the best new restaurants of the year. So it was a huge celebration for me. And it was something that I'd never expected. It was, it was something that was extremely odd because you're in a negative frame of mind because you don't know where you're going. You just are surviving to try and keep your restaurant open because of the location. But also there were turnstiles that had been built for the stock exchange in the front of my restaurant so people couldn't drive their car into it. The scaffolding on the building wasn't coming down for for about six months, so therefore there was another challenge. So here I am, this guy with no reputation in the middle of Wall Street with all this disaster happening. And what can you do? You stand there and you cook and you drive and you build business. And we funded the restaurant for a little while, which was unfortunate because we didn't want to do that. Um, but as we progressively got the awards, people started to come. Anyway, to make a long story short, New York Magazine were very gracious with me. I got Best New Chef and Best New Restaurant for, the, for New York Magazine, which was great. Um, Adam Platt wasn't so kind. He gave me a bit of a hard time for the location and took a star away. So I got two stars, from, which was interesting. No, this is the game. It's, you never take it personally. Um, but the good thing is, is in the second end of the second year, I got a call and it was on a, a blank message and they basically had awarded me two Michelin stars. So that, Amazing. Well, I mean, to get two Michelin you. stars is so hard. Well, at the time, I think there was only nine restaurants with two and three stars. Yes. And growing up in Australia and having Euro- European training, Michelin was the biggest thing in our minds that we would ever achieve, and I never thought I was going to get one, let alone two. Um, so that was really the... the I, I felt like it was karma. All the hard work, all of the stress, the dedication, everything over a 20-year period had all folded into that one w- reward. And it was so bizarre. It was very satisfying for the time. Now I look back at it, it's a great achievement. I'm very proud of it. But the one thing that it gives me is energy to drive for the third. And I think that's the key in my life. It's, you know, you've got Pellegrino, you've got New York Times, you've got Michelin. But because I've grown up with Michelin, that was something that, especially from a country perspective in Australia, I had the Sydney Morning Herald, the Melbourne Age, the, the Brisbane Papers, the Cairns Post, the entire country writing about me right at that point in time, the Wall Street Journal, everything... Uh, and all those achievements had been put down uh, into print. So I kind of made history for myself and also for a lot of Australians. And the one thing that was another reward too was there's a book that comes out for Australia. No, no, no one would know it in this country. It's called Who's Who of Australia. And then they documented me in this book and then basically I, I, um, I got one book sent to me. And that for me was a, a life achievement. I felt like I felt like I actually did something in my life, and I felt very, very, very satisfied. And, and you're uh, only 38 years old. You have a long way to go. Well, I, I feel older than that, trust me. <laughs> okay, we're going to take another um, break here, and uh, we'll be right back talking to Sean Ferga of Juni Restaurant. 
listening to Chef's Story. I'm Dorothy Can Hamilton, and today I'm talking to Sean Hergott at uh, Juni Restaurant on East 31st Street, New York City. And it hasn't been rated by Michelin yet, but if you really want to taste Michelin food, the next big deal restaurant, you have to come here um, while you can still get in. <laughs> anyway, um, it's a long slog to being successful and maybe fulfilled as a chef, as you've just said. So you have, now you're opening Juni. How intimidating is it having your last restaurant have two Michelin stars, getting 29, 29, 29 from Sagat? Um, you know, before you were discovered, what do you feel like there's the expectation now? Um, yeah, absolutely. And, and is the, how is the you don't have turnstiles outside this restaurant, so Adam Platt isn't going to take a star away for that. Oh, should hope not. Yeah, I hope not. Adam, are you listening? Um, so, what what's your challenge now? What's your dream now? What's your because you are a person who likes a challenge. I can tell that right away. It's yeah. striving, striving, striving. So, where is the next bar? Uh, I think I think what it is 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 it's not about any of the ratings. You never think about that. It's, it's not the driving force of your career. It's the reward at the end that you know, you've achieved something. But the team is what I'm, I'm focusing on now. <clears throat> We've got a great design. I've, I've, I've worked very hard to get a beautiful restaurant together. Um, but it's a team. It's making sure that I connect with every human being from the sommelier to the host, the bartenders, making sure that we have a cohesive philosophy and understanding of what we're trying to drive in the restaurant, making sure that everyone has that that solo, you know, one voice to be able to say, listen, this is who we are and what we're doing. Um, focusing, you know, nine o'clock in the morning, I'm here working with the guys, getting ready for lunch. You know, I finish at one in the morning because it's an opening restaurant. We're only five weeks old. Just working side by side with the guys and making sure that their technique and the way that they produce uh, their food and, and the way that they're organizing their lives is at <clears throat> a level of my expectation, but not only that, that we're doing something that is in such a short time trying to make something so extraordinary um, you have to baby it and you have to make sure that you caress it and you love it and that's that only comes from the team and I think that's the, the one thing that everyone understands from success it's not about you it's more so about every little ind individual person all linking up and synergizing so that they know how to how to produce and, and as we call the tickets and as we start service that there's that perfect sort of, it's never going to be perfect, but we like to think about perfection and strive for excellence, but that there's a beautiful flow of service so that the, the, the understanding from when you take the order for the drink, the reservation, by the time the food gets to the table and the wine is poured, all the way to the petty fours and the fond farewell, it has that essence of, of, of not only excellence, but a personal understanding and a personal touch. That for me is very important because when you walk into this restaurant, it's 50 seats. You can't hide. If there's bad service, it's going to be all over the place. If the food isn't excellent, therefore you're going to spot it straight away because there's only 50 people dining at once. It's multi-courses. You can have a four or six or a ten-course tasting. So it's a complicated situation. My job now is to get talented individuals, bring them together, make them hold hands, and work as a team. That is, that is my entire complete focus on what I'm doing right now. Okay, so... Explain to me your food. How, you know, we were just talking before we started the show about there's so many people who say I'm seasonal, I'm farm to table, I'm, I'm right. this, that. But 
yours, you're distinct. Where, describe for us one dish that you think is real signature to you and how you compose it. Okay. It starts from the concept. And as we worked on this seasonal restaurant, which can be defined in many different ways, I work with the local artist who basically we flew in ingredients from Chef's Garden in Ohio and we took photos of these nasturtium flowers. It was inspiration for a fish dish that has been very popular here and there's a connection when you look at it on the table and you look at the artwork, the flowers are also within the plate and they're within the sauce and the leaves are actually a garnish on the plate. So the nasturtium flower, the nasturtium leaves garnish the striped bass. So we, we, we take that out of Montauk. Um, and I, I, it's really hard to explain that people think farm to table is rustic eating I don't do rustic food I have done before and I love it and I love to eat it I would say technically it's very refined here and it's extremely detailed um, not necessarily any better or any worse than any other restaurant in the city I just feel like we're dedicated to precision um, I feel that you'll have two medallions of striped bass that we sous vide off so they're, they're these perfect little medallions of fish and we have a nasturtium sauce where we, we use a little bit of calamansi. We emulsify the nasturtium flour to give it some blossom and flavor and color. And then we finish it with some butter and some stock and some few other things. And then we mix some mint oil uh, to emulsify it through as, as the sauce base. It's with carrot, and, uh, carrot puree. It has the nasturtium flowers and the nasturtium leaves. And when you look at this little art, you know, piece of art on the plate and you taste it, it has a great, great foundation. When you look at it on the walls, you can see the connection between the concept and what you're eating. That, to me, is very important. It's not just the composition of the plate. It's not just the size of the table. But it's this whole understanding that I've been to Chef's Garden. You know, we've picked stuff out of the ground. I've used them for over a decade now. You know, there's a personal relationship between the chef and the guest. There's an understanding between quality ingredients. So it's this whole mix of... First you pull it out of the ground, then you get to wash it, you fly it in, because unfortunately I can't get it so locally. Um, the Hudson River doesn't really provide great fish, so we get the stuff from Montauk, which I work with a, a very small provider, and she's a great lady, and she's passionate about a fish. So we bring it all together, we show respect to the product, we have a very, very strong systematic understanding on how to get it to the plate. Detailed recipe card, understanding the mise en place sheet so that we know exactly what's broken down on them on the plate. We have a photo profile. For the front of house we have another thing we call a plating guide which has all the directions of what the dishes are and how they're made up. With the origins we also do allergies. We understand you know if there's any issues with gluten so that the front of house are versed. Um, they know where the, the fish is coming from. They know where the vegetables are from. Anyway to make a long story short this is what it's about. So when you think about farm to table, when you think about taking something out of the ground it doesn't have to necessarily just be sautéed in a pan and dropped on a plate and eating it for what it is. We do exactly the same thing, yet we take a huge amount of detail and care, not only for the artistic side of it and the way that it's presented, but every single detail is thought through so that when, when you're eating, it shouldn't be so cerebral that it's intimidating, but you should be thinking about what you're doing because this is an experienced restaurant. Mm -hmm. You're coming to me for what we like to sort of say is a life memory. And when you're sitting down there and you're having a celebration with your husband, wife, child, whatever, mm. and it's a birthday, I want you to remember us for the next 25 years. And when you have grandchildren, you say, you know, I had my 20th anniversary. That meal was something that was so memorable, I have to tell my grandchildren. Mm. 
That's what we're passionately after. Every table counts and every diner is very, very important when they come into a into journey. And that's what we're striving for. Wow. That's, that's, that's extraordinary. You know, uh, Alain Sayak, who's a dean at the school, he, he said something to the students, which is, you know, you as a chef are doing one of the most intimate things in the whole world. You're making food that people put in their body. Mm. Do you know what bond that is that you have with people that come into your restaurant? Do you know what kind of respect you have to show them and they have to show you? And I think that that's not maybe foremost on a lot of people's minds uh, on, in both sides of the equation, but what you just described to me uh, comes closer to it than anyone I've spoken to. That it really that is. Like. Every single, yeah, every single person in that restaurant is important yeah. it isn't just getting the table done it's it's that communion with the chef yeah i also think too there's another level as well especially from a young cook's perspective that you know alan sayak basically talks about how it's an intimate relationship between the chef and, and the stomach and also eating and the internal internalization of what you're doing but it's also our obligation to make sure it's like a surgery. We talk about our kitchen to be so clean that you can eat off every surface and that at the end of the day, we should be acting and working like surgeons because you are putting something into somebody's body. There is a certain value of why, is, why it is organic. You have to understand that cooking a carrot, there's a certain way that you should cook it, so therefore you have the full value of what you're eating as well. It's not just about the flavor profiles and having opulent food and having all these fancy flavors. It's also about nourishment. It's about things that are very important for your body. Not using you know, products that are mass-produced because they're pumped full of hormones and steroids and all this sort of stuff. Finding your source and understanding what's going to be good for people. And this is why I challenge people who do a lot of chemical gastronomy. Every time I go and eat at another restaurant who uses a lot of formulas and a lot of these chemicals and all these gels and things like this, and trust me, I use certain things, they're very minimal, to try and enhance the product, but I've actually eaten in restaurants at a very high level. I've eaten in the best restaurants in the world. And I haven't felt good because I know that the food source and what they're manipulating the food with isn't good for your body. And I think from a young cook's perspective, it's extremely important to know your source and understand what you're serving. So do just, wait, give us some of those things that are being used today that aren't good for you. Well, I think that the trend is slowing down. And I'm not here to criticize any great chefs because we all respect Farhan. Yes. I've cooked for him myself. Yes. He's an amazing guy and he's yes, a genius yes. within his own right. Right. But... What the real point is, is that if you get a chicken, don't get the chicken that's grown in 30 days. Get the slow-growth chicken. Get the one that's been feeding and has free range. If you learn how to, to understand the product and you cook it well mm. and it's organic and it's, and it's eating the right food and, it's, and, and you're cooking it in the right way and you're serving it to your clients, it's mm. far more satisfying. It's better for your health. And again, we get back to that surgery situation is that you're really providing something that's going to make somebody's insides and also the way that they are as a being in a, in a better way. And that's the most important value. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. everyone has criticisms. Everyone has their own opinion. My opinion is the fact that, you know, just eat really good food. I grew up on a farm. I know what good food's about. There was no chemicals when I was growing the corn for the summer. When we plucked the tomatoes or the passion fruit or we saw the bananas on the tree that were ripe, Mm. when you taste that flavor profile Mm. and it's fully organic, yeah, there's weeds everywhere and it doesn't look sexy. Mm. But the one thing is, is when you put it in your mouth, you know what the difference is. Right. Um, You do work from 9 in the morning to 11 at night. And you're, you're just, I don't think you have a lot of time for inspiration. 
Mm. But how if if you had time, if somebody could give you an extra twenty four hours in a week, where would you go for it, and what would you be looking for? Actually, I think inspiration comes at all times. It's a bizarre thing. I'll be looking at something, and that's inspiration. When I wake up four o'clock in the morning, there's inspiration that comes, and I lock it in my memory. So if I start dreaming about something, you know, I have this ability where I can lock it into my memory, and then I wake up in the morning and I know exactly what I was thinking about. So that's one aspect. But you know, I'm, I get an inspiration from everything. I go to the gym. I work out very, you know, a lot because I like to be healthy, and it's a clarity of mind that keeps me sane. Um, I get inspiration there. I get inspiration when I'm sitting on a park bench watching you know the sun because I don't get to see it too much but I think the one thing is is I take every Sunday off and there's perspective there and that's inspiration I think that dining in other restaurants is extremely inspirational I think I, I promote everyone going out to, to dine at all different levels whether it's a pizza or whether it's at 11 Madison Park you should do it you know um, I think inspiration comes from everything and that's the one reason why I live in the city I, I feel like Everything I touch and everything I see gives me a little value of, of how I can grow my mind and, and, and what I do in my life. It's important. You've got to smell the air for what it is. Smelling the air in New York might not be... It's not uh, that bad. It's not that actually, bad. Actually, it is not that bad. The air quality it, could be worse. It me. could be. Yes, it could be. I've been to Shanghai. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, right. Um, so, uh, what's the future of Juni? I mean, I know it's just open and it's five weeks, but... What's um, the future? Yeah. That's such an I open-ended mean, question. Do you feel this is the one restaurant you'll be in for the next 20 years? Or no, is there... Yeah. No, no. I've got so much to give. I've got so many ideas in my head. And, you know, the one thing is for me, it's just this is another birth of a great, of a great idea. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's so many different things in my life that I want to give to the, to the, to the guests. You know, clearly I, I, I can do a lower price point restaurant which I'm very interested in doing. And it's not just about the financial statement. It's about I've got these little intricacies for the design and I'm filtering it in through the, the food and vice versa. And I probably, I've probably put about five or six different concepts together in the last two or three years that are, that are in my head. They're now on paper. And uh, hopefully we'll get to open those as well so that everyone can enjoy it and still come in and say, listen, I, I got to eat in a great restaurant. It cost me 65 bucks. It's not expensive. It's it was really delicious, and it was really something that was inspirational. Um, but also, I'd like them to come in and, and eventually, you know, I, I look at chefs like Danielle and you know Thomas Keller, and I know them personally, and I think they've always been somebody who's inspired me since I've been very young because they've been around for almost a century or two. And I see what they've done, and I admire that, and that's something that helps me drive you know the future for what I'm going to do as well. But trust me, I haven't stopped yet. Junior is not the end. No, I, I you know, uh, just seeing your work ethic or and uh, what you've done already is amazing. And how, so, so, is what you do? How much of your food? And this will be the final question because we're yeah. running out of time. How much of your food is craft, being an excellent craftsman, and how much is art? And do you have an opinion about how a chef should look at? Their, mm. their their work. My opinion solely based on taste. Taste is the first format of excellence. So, if it doesn't taste good, don't don't cook it. If it doesn't taste excellently, perfectly balanced, then what's the point? 
the last thing I want to do is have this artistic meal, put it in my mouth and it doesn't taste balanced. That's the biggest criticism I have against young chefs. The one thing that you need to do is make sure that if it's a perfect piece of fish and you have a sauce and a garnish, that they're all balanced and that it's the best products that you can get and they taste amazing. The artistic side of it comes with age. It comes with you know, development and understanding on how you can produce. It's not the key factor on why you cook. The key factor is flavor. And I think that the one thing is, is that when you go to a great restaurant, you know, the pizza can look perfect. But if, you don't, if it doesn't have that perfect texture, it doesn't taste perfect, you don't want to go back. And our business is about consistency, reoccurrence of great guests, making sure that people come back because they love what they eat. When you eat, you eat with your tongue and your nose. You know, the visual aspect is something that is just fluffy. I do a lot of visual, but first and foremost, when we put it together, it has to taste amazing. And I restrain my, my artistic side to make sure that the flavor profiles are perfect before I do any sort of like so, intricacies. So when does a plate <clears throat> transcend itself from craft to art? Well, that's a hard question because I think the one thing is, is that when you put a perfect piece of fish on a plate with olive oil and lemon, that's right there. That's perfection. And that's the evolution of, of a chef, that they'll be very complicated at the start. But then when you get to, for example, Alain Sayak's situation, he's looking for that perfect piece of fish. He's looking for the best olive oil and the best Maya lemon that he can pick and the best fleur de sel. And when you eat that fish, it's perfectly cooked and it's perfectly balanced. That's the art of cooking. The rest is fluff. I think on that note, we can end this first conversation. <laughs> it's been wonderful to talk to you. It's so exciting to be here. Good luck with Junie. Thank you very much. Well, we'll see you next time. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton. I'd like to do a shout out to Robin Cohen and Jack Inslee, my producers, and uh, we'll be hearing from you next week. Bye. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.